Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A few weeks ago, in downtown Shanghai, as the neon festooned city glowed in middle of the night, an Australian journalist was woken up by a knock at the door. I ran downstairs. I'm still half asleep, didn't know what was going on. And I opened the door. There were seven sort of uniformed police standing on my front doorstep. But it wasn't the police. It was much more alarming. It was Chinese state security. I thought, oh, my God, they've come to take me away. I'm going to disappear into a prison somewhere. It was quite terrifying. As journalists become the latest pawns in a diplomatic feud, how bad are tensions between Australia and China? There are now no ministerial exchanges between Australia and China. So we're in the position, our largest trading partner, none of their ministers will talk to us, let alone allow us to go and see them. Doesn't happen. We don't, we don't have a relationship anymore, which is the strangest place to be in. Where do the two countries go from here? Is there a way back? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the curious case of the disappearing journalists. Two Australian reporters are back on home soil tonight after a tense five-day diplomatic standoff in China. Mike Smith back in Australia and clearly relieved. Very disappointing to um, to have to leave under those circumstances. And um, it's a relief to be back in a country with genuine rule of law. The men were questioned by Chinese police about the detention of another Australian journalist who is now being held in Beijing on national security grounds. It's just been quite crazy. I never thought I'd be part of anything like that. And then I've sort of flown home into this sort of unexpected media storm. Michael Smith is the China correspondent for the Australian Financial Review, a major business newspaper in Australia. So I've been based in Shanghai for almost three years. I'm talking to Michael whilst he's quarantined in a hotel room, having just returned to Australia. It's been quite a week for him. Where do, where do I begin? Really all started last Monday. I was sort of out working and two of my editors called me Monday afternoon and said, we've just had a call from Australia's foreign ministry and we've been advised to tell you that uh, you should leave China. Uh, so they had this very high level warning. The warning had come out of the blue. 
Australia-China relations uh, have been very tense for, for quite a few months, but I, I never thought uh, I would have to leave the country. But something had clearly changed. Alarm bells kept ringing. Now, at the same time, the Australian government announced another Australian journalist called Chung Lei. She's a TV anchorwoman for state television in China. She had been detained. So that, that news was quite alarming, but we, we sort of reserved our decision because this other reporter works for Chinese state media. She's not sort of a foreign correspondent, so she's sort of in a different category to myself. So we weren't sort of panicking just Did yet. You know- did you know what she'd been detained for? No, so no one knows. And and this is typical in China. People can be sort of disappeared and detained. We don't know what she's been charged with or, or what the government wants with her. So it's, a, so it's a huge mystery. My name is Cheng Lei. I'm a TV anchor based in Beijing, China. And this is my story. The beauty of an Australian education is not about what is taught, but more about what it doesn't teach. Chung Lei was born and educated in Australia, but she'd become the face of a state TV channel in China. Then, she suddenly vanished from the screen a few weeks before Michael was told to leave the country. She's now being held in a secret location by the Chinese authorities on, they claim, national security grounds. It was an alarming development for the other Australian journalists in China, all two of them. There were only two journalists working for Australian media outlets left in China at the time because a lot of the others couldn't get in because of border closures. The other journalist was Bill Bertels from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, their equivalent of the BBC. We went to the embassy the next morning and we had a series of briefings and it was pressed upon us pretty strongly that we should leave China. Spent the next day or two having some very serious conversations, trying to decide if, if, if we should leave. It, you know, it's a very serious decision to make. You might never get back in again. My newspaper's had a bureau there for 16 years and, and our coverage is really important. But in the end, the, the warnings from the Australian government and, and diplomats became so strong and so pressed we decided we, we just could not ignore this advice. So Michael and Bill booked their flights to leave China. It was due to leave on Thursday night. So I packed my bags on, on Wednesday, prepared to, to leave my home. I was sort of quite upset. I love living there and certainly wasn't ready to leave like that. I, I couldn't say goodbye to any of my friends. We'd agreed just to, to go out quietly because it was such a sensitive situation. With a heavy heart and his bags packed, Michael went to bed on Wednesday night, knowing he'd be leaving China the next day. Now, shortly after midnight, so early Thursday morning, there was this pounding at my front door. I ran downstairs. I'm still half asleep, didn't know what was going on. And I opened the door. There were seven sort of uniformed police standing on my front doorstep. But they weren't policemen. They were from Chinese state security which is more like a secret police intelligence operation, so much, much more serious than, than your average police. They came into my house. I sat there on the couch and I'm surrounded by these 
security officials. One guy's got a huge camera filming the whole thing and, you know, there's a light in my face. So it's very, very intimidating. And then they sort of read from a document. It was read in Chinese, but there was a translator there. And they were basically informing me that I was a person of interest in an investigation. They wanted to question me at a later date. And in the meantime, I couldn't leave the country. So this was really alarming. I mean, China often puts exit, they're called exit bans on people where, where you can't leave. In China, a visit from state security would be unnerving at the best of times. Coming now, in middle of the night, it filled Michael with dread. One point I thought, oh my God, they've come to take me away. I'm going to disappear into, into a prison somewhere. It was quite terrifying. Um, I'm going to disappear. I'm going to be like this other journalist, Cheng Lei, and, and be taken away. I mean, why else would they come at that hour of the morning? So, so they weren't aggressive. They don't get physically violent. But um, the whole setup's very intimidating. And, you, you know, in China, it's designed that way. They, they do this on purpose. It was sort of all over in five or ten minutes and they suddenly got up. It's all sort of rehearsed. They got up and walked out my door and I'm just sitting there going, you know, oh, my God, what is... What has happened here? Michael immediately called Bill Bertels in Beijing. This is when it got even more alarming. He had had the exact same visit at the same time as me. He had seven officers at his apartment in Beijing. They relayed the same information and we both thought this is absolutely political. Michael and Bill immediately contacted the Australian embassy. They said to come in first thing in the morning and went back to bed, but I didn't sleep a wink that night. I'm not surprised. No, no. <laughs> so the real action sort of kicked off the next day. I mean, I, I went to the Australian consulate in, in Shanghai and it was decided then that, that me and this other journalist were in some serious trouble and we needed uh, diplomatic protection. So I was driven to my home in a, in a diplomatic van with black plates, which technically means you should be, you should have some kind of protection. You, you know, police shouldn't be able to stop the car or drag you out of the car. And, you know, a, a diplomat sort of ran into my house, grabbed my bags, which, which were already packed. And then we, we took off. There was a plain closed, we think it was a plain closed policeman outside my house, sort of wandering up and down suspiciously in the laneway. So there was sort of Really? Keeping it, keeping an eye on everything. So it's all very cloak and dagger. I mean, as as a foreign journalist in China, how much of that goes on anyway? I mean, how how aware are you of being monitored? I mean, you sort of assume your your phone's probably bugged. I mean, I've had people follow me in other parts of China. I've been to Xinjiang, and there's always a you know there's always people following you around there. That's a much more sensitive area. But but sort of nothing like I experienced last week at all. So it, it was a bit disturbing. Michael was rushed to an Australian consulate building where he would be... Protected under the Vienna Convention, so Chinese officials technically can't interfere uh, in things once you're in there. So I settled in and I thought, my God, I'm going to be the next Julian Assange. I'm, you know, I'm, how long am I going to, <laughs> going to be stuck here for? New home. Yes, yeah. So it was they all... hope you like the ambassador's reception. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, I must say they were they were very good to me. There was wine. I think the diplomats are good in a crisis. They know how to make you feel comfortable and and not too terrified. Michael was holed up in the consulate for five days. A deal was eventually reached, which would allow Michael and Bill to leave China. But 
on one condition. We had to agree to go into the Ministry of State Security and, and do a, a sort of interview with them. And the interview was in relation to this Chung Lei case, the, the other detained journalist. So this was quite a risky option. We didn't we didn't know if they would stick to their word and, and, and once I left the consulate, would, would anything happen to me? There was sort of nothing else we could really do. How did that visit go? <laughs> well, that was... What's it like walking into the, the Ministry of State Security? That is like walking well, into the lion's den. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, that's the perfect, uh, perfect summary. Um, it was actually the meeting was held in a, in a hotel. So it wasn't quite as scary as it could have been. This was Monday. We got to Monday. My interview was at 3pm. My flight was due to depart at 8.30pm. So it was all down to the wire. You still just never know what's going to happen. But I was escorted there by by a diplomat. Uh, We went into the hotel foyer. Two of the security officials met me. They wouldn't let the diplomat come up to the room with me, which we had expected so I went into the lift with them and up to the 31st floor and I just thought, am I, you know, am I ever going to come out of here? What's going to happen? And then we walk, walk into the room and look, it's a pretty non-threatening setup, I suppose. There's four people in the room. There's a translator. There's, there's a guy typing everything out. There was a female officer asking the questions and, you, you know, you sit down on a chair and you have a bottle of water. So they started asking me questions and, and I just didn't really know what to expect, but it was... It was bizarrely straightforward. They were asking me about things that they would have known already, you know, where do I live and how long have I been in China and what kind of stories do I cover? They wanted to know if I'd covered the Hong Kong protests last year, which I had. And they did ask me about Cheng Lei, but um, they were very simple questions. They just asked me if I'd met her, where did I meet her, who introduced me. And, and the fact is I'd only met her very briefly once in a bar with a bunch of other journalists. I, I didn't even talk to her, so I don't really know her at all. And I made that clear and, and they didn't ask me anything further. So I, I just didn't get the sense that they really? They, they really thought that I actually knew anything that could be useful to, to them. They, they sort of didn't probe me or really push for anything at all. And how long did it go on? Because obviously the clock was ticking and your flight was... was <laughs> well, exactly. You know when you get ner- up. nervous about missing a flight, like I really wanted to be on this. But it, it went for an hour, an hour and, and then I left, went downstairs and diplomat ushered me into the car and we were sort of off to the airport, sort of your heart's pounding did, did they know a little that you bit. were leaving? They, they absolutely would have. I mean, it, it, in China, they know everything you're doing. As soon as you book those tickets... Um, with your passport number that, you know, they know uh, that you're going to be on that plane. So so they definitely would have. We scooted off to the airport, met met this other journalist who had come down from Beijing to get his connecting flight and, and the diplomat sort of escorted us all the way uh, to the gate. You know, that, that took a couple of hours. We had a drink in the lounge before we left. And I think by the time we, we once we cleared customs, we thought of, sort of thought, yeah, we're going to be okay. If they wanted to stop us now, they would do it at customs. So we, you know, we, we sort of started to becoming more relaxed. I rang my dad from the lounge. I hadn't told my parents what was going on. I didn't want to alarm them. They're, they're sort of quite elderly. What was that call like? He he was in shock. He was he was he was very much in shock. He didn't quite know what was going on. And luckily, when we got on the plane, actually, um, the plane had Wi-Fi, so I could I was madly messaging people to say we we're in the air. But, um, but <laughs> how did that moment feel? The plane is taxiing along the runway. Yeah, you know you're actually off. <laughs> Once we're in the air, that was 
a huge sigh of relief. So, so that was a that was a great feeling. And then, you know, the next morning, I remember flying into Sydney and flying over Sydney Harbour, and you can see the Opera House, and it's sort of like God, Sydney's never looked so so good in in my life before. So it was sort of nice <laughs> to get home. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Well, we heard uh, uh, some rumours that a couple of journalists were inside one of the Australian missions in China. Bernard Lagan is the Times Australia correspondent based in Sydney, who keeps a close eye on China from his post. We didn't know really much about who they were and what happened to them until it was suddenly announced that they were back on Australia soil. Once they arrived in Sydney, we were told the whole story. And since the journalists' return, more news has broken, which might explain what was behind the Chinese campaign against them. Our sense here is that it is kind of a tit-for-tat exercise by the Chinese government, both what happened to Li Cheng and what happened to Bill Bertels and to Mike Smith, because it only emerged last week that Australia had quietly expelled six Chinese academics and journalists in June for uh-huh. alleged political espionage activity conducted in Australia. Now, it's, this is all very strange. All the government has said about it is what has been, it has kind of leaked to the Australian newspaper, which is that the academics and the journalists who were forced out of here in June were not spies inserted into Australia posing as reporters or academics, but were people who, quote, had become engaged in espionage or foreign interference, unquote, and no more has been said about at all. One of the men expelled from Australia was a high-profile academic called Chen Hong. Chen Hong has been, for a long time, many years, the the director of the Australian Study Centre at the East China Normal University 
I think, in Beijing. And he's been a regular visitor to, visitor to Australia since the early 1990s. And he is a well-known scholar of some of Australia's best writers. Chen Hong also was quite close to the Australian, former Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke. He translated for Bob Hawke when Hawke was Prime Minister. So there's no evidence in the past that Chen Hong has been anything but a friend to Australia. So these aren't sort of likely candidates. These aren't sort of people you, you, would, you would assume were in Australia up to no good. Exactly, exactly. And in, certainly in Chen Hong's case, I mean, people here who know him have all said, essentially, that they don't believe that he's been involved in, in the espionage. Um, they know him well, and he, they say his character is not that kind of character. So it is mysterious and odd, and for the moment, unexplained. To understand why Australia might have expelled these Chinese academics, we have to look back at rising tensions between the two countries in recent years. Back in 2014, Xi Jinping made an official visit to Australia and it was highly publicised and regarded as highly successful. One of the places the Chinese president really wanted to go for some reason was Tasmania. And no Chinese president has been to that island state at the bottom of Australia. And he went there uh, and he really liked it. And suddenly, Tasmania economy took off. It was inundated with Chinese tourists <laughs> who followed in the footsteps of their president because he said he liked it so much. So things were going very well. China had signed a trade deal with Australia in 2014. There was a, a fairly quick boost to wine exports from Australia to China, agricultural exports, including cheeses and dairy products, that everything looked pretty rosy. So when did it go wrong? It began to change in around about 2015, 2016, when the Australia's intelligence agencies told Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull that China's espionage in Australia had reached industrial levels. And it wasn't just intelligence gathering on military or security matters that you might expect. It was intelligence gathering on scientific research what was going on in the Australian universities and commerce. So Malcolm Turnbull decided, with advice from the intelligence agencies, that Australia needed to reform and update its so-called foreign interference laws. And then there was the case of a young, upcoming Australian senator, Sam Dastyar. He was a prominent defender of China's military activities, even though it went against his own party's policy. He was found to have been taking money from wealthy, well-connected Chinese expats who had close links to the Chinese government. Sam Dastyar had to resign, but it gave the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, the excuse he needed to crack down. So what it, in effect, meant was that if you were an agent for China, if you were lobbying for China, if you were lobbying for Chinese companies or lobbying for the Chinese government, you had to be on a register so that your name was publicly known. That's the first thing. And then the penalties were vastly increased for espionage activity, for such activities if you weren't reporting, that kind of thing. It, look, it was all mild enough, but China took great offence. But Malcolm Turnbull, whilst he was Prime Minister, decided to go further. Then it got compounded again 
when Australia became the first country in the world, again under Malcolm Turnbull, to ban the Chinese telecommunications company Huawei from having any role in building Australia's new 5G telephone network. Now, Malcolm Turnbull was very aware that this was going to cause China to become even more angry. So he decided he wouldn't announce it. He decided it would simply be announced by way of government press statement on a Friday, basically, <laughs> so that you know it would be done, but a solemn dance wouldn't make, be made too much about it. But he did ring Donald Trump and tell him and say, look, I'm just letting you know I'm going to ban Huawei. But Donald Trump was surprised and ecstatic and announced it in America, which the Chinese, according to Turnbull, took the view that Turnbull had set out very deliberately to tell Trump and I hope you tell the world. And Turnbull says that was never his intention he, and he was surprised that it happened, but nevertheless it happened. And so that just made things worse. So that's the background to it. I sort of take the view that Australia has been at fault here itself, actually. Really? Yeah, I do. In what way? Well, particularly our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Well, it's, it's, it's for others to explain to me what the offence is. I mean, Australia has simply acted in accordance with our national interests. We have acted as a good uh, uh, global citizen, whether it comes to multilateral trading forums or indeed through the World Health Assembly. Um, None of our actions have been targeted in any way, shape or form okay. at China. Um, it's been, we've got a, a partnership with them and we're living up to that partnership. Pretty soon after the coronavirus pandemic hit Australia in March and April this year, Scott Morrison led the calls and said, I am leading the call for an international inquiry into the origins of the COVID-19. Of course, everyone knew that meant the World Health Organization or, or a similar body would have to go into China, into Wuhan, presumably, to discover the origins of the coronavirus. Now, I mean, of course, uh, an international inquiry is a sensible thing, but you have to ask yourself, why would Australia lead the call? It was going to happen anyway. Of course, it would have happened at some point. But by Australia, by leading the call without first telling China that, that it was going to say this, it became very obvious that China was extremely angry about this. And in fact, look, just a couple of weeks ago, the deputy head of the Chinese diplomatic mission to Australia gave a speech to the National Press Club in Canberra and laid out how angry China was. He said that in according for an international inquiry, Scott Morrison had very badly hurt the feelings of China. That's what he said. And it really, it's, it was a form of megaphone diplomacy, which a lot of people don't think works very well with China. I think the reason is, is that this relationship between Australia and China has become so toxic that there are politics of advantage in it for Scott Morrison, for the Australian government, that it doesn't hurt them to be seen to be standing up to China, taking China on, that people actually quite like that. As our man covering the patch, I mean, what lessons do you think there are for us here in how to handle the Chinese? Because it's become such a hot issue here. And, you know, even within the Conservative Party, there are sort of different schools of thought now about how aggressive we should be, whether we should take them on. From what you've seen of Australia and New Zealand, what works? Britain's in a, in a, in a different position, I think. I mean, it's not nearly as reliant on export income from China to the extent that Australia and New Zealand is. That's the first thing. So, I mean, 
It's not as though, you know, if Beijing decides it's going to ban barley exports from Britain, it's really, I don't think anyone's going to notice. <laughs> so it doesn't have them in the, in the vice, have the UK and the vice in the way that it does have Australia and New Zealand. As tensions continue to rise, how will Australia and China develop any kind of mutual understanding if they don't allow each other's journalists in. I asked Michael Smith if he could imagine going back. Yeah, it's a, it's a really tough question. I think at the moment in the short term, pro- probably not. Given what, what has happened, it's turned into such a, a big public case, I think it'd be very difficult. But we haven't made a decision whether to close our bureau or, or not to return next year. We're going to keep covering China from Sydney for now. We've had the bureau there for 16 years and, and China coverage is really important for us. I mean, our whole economy relies on China, but it's going to be a tough decision that we have to make in coming months. I mean, I'd like to go back of course, one day. I mean, I didn't get to say goodbye to any of my friends. I actually really enjoyed living in China. It's just a absolutely fascinating country. So, so I would like to return one day. But it, it's just a real shame that it's ended this way. And, you know, Australia has always had journalists in China for the last 50 years. So this is the first time since the 70s we haven't had anyone there. I think it's getting tougher for all journalists in in China as well. A a lot of American journalists have sort of been forced to leave. And it's just getting generally harder to report in China. Um, People are more wary about speaking to foreign journalists and just sort of scared to speak openly. So it's just going to get tougher and tougher. I think in the future, I would be safe to go back. I haven't been convicted of sort of a crime. I'm not a suspect in, in a case directly. I mean, I really think it's sort of I've been caught up in some some diplomatic tensions and and maybe when they die down if they die down it, it would probably be probably be safe to go back but I think you know any Australian citizen on the ground there at the moment's a little bit uh, a little bit on edge about what's happened You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me Manveen Rana and my guests the Times Australia correspondent Bernard Lagan and the China correspondent for the Australian Financial Review, Michael Smith. You can read more of Bernard's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. Today's episode was produced by Leona Hamid and Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. If you have a minute, please do leave us a review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and now we're also available on the Times radio app along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app search for Times Radio in the App Store. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.